If you missed last week, uh, we went through an overview of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and if you're interested in hearing that, uh, it will be posted uh, online under the Young Adult Study page. Um, but what we talked about was that the big situation in Corinth that Paul wrote to uh, was a group of young believers who had imported their cultural values into the church. They had what I talked about as a, as a gospel gap. Jesus answered some questions for them, like the big life questions, but the gospel did not answer the how I live among believers question or how I relate to the world question. So Paul writes this book from a gospel perspective to address these issues. Um, so today we're going to jump into the introduction, uh, verses 1 through 17. Paul greets them, thanks God for them, and then gives them his initial appeal. Um, before we jump in there, I want, I want to help you guys think through uh, what's going on in this first, these first 17 verses. So uh, who here, uh, and this might be a little convicting survey of the class, who here has ever uh, shared the gospel with a coworker or someone that you work with? All right. Okay, got a few hands here. That's wonderful. Cool. All right. Um, any successes with that? I haven't had many evangelist, evangelistic successes either, okay? It's tough, all right? But imagine, all right, best case scenario, the Lord puts somebody on your heart, and you start praying for him, and you're really nervous, but one day, you just kind of mumble some things about Jesus in your mouth, okay? Um, but it turns out they're interested. The Spirit's working in their hearts, and um, they start getting involved here at East Cooper, and before you know it, they become a believer. And it's raw, and they've got all this baggage to deal with, but they are thirsty for the word, and they're growing, and it's great. Uh, six months passes, and they move to Charlotte. They get a new job, they move to Charlotte. And you try to keep in touch, um, but, you know, it's, it's hard. Uh, but you start, uh, you know, six or seven months after they move, you just are just kind of browsing on Facebook, wasting your life away, okay? And you notice their name, and you're like, oh, I need to check in on them. So you, you start to Facebook stalk them, okay? Um, and you start to see some things that really disturb you. Uh, you see your friend, um, every, they're still church hopping, and every church they go to, they just lampoon on Facebook. Just criticize it. This pastor's terrible. He's awful. I hate this church, whatever. You also see uh, he or she posting some pictures that look like their lifestyle has gotten a little ridiculous. And the more time goes by, the worse it gets, and you become really convinced that you have got to confront your friend. You've got to do something. And you want to make sure your thoughts are clear, and so you decide to write them a letter or probably an email or maybe one of those extremely long Facebook messages, you know, that are impossible to read, okay? You try to do that, all right? Um, and you sit down, and the cursor is blinking. And here's my question. What do you start with? You've got a ton of stuff you want to address. They've got all these issues in their life that they've got to change. But where do you start? Um, Paul is writing, um, and where he starts might be a little bit surprising to us. So let's, uh, let's hear the scriptures. 1 Corinthians um, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you until the end. 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, or you can say brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Clovis people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just, just pray that you would lead us this morning. Um, pray that you'd send the Spirit and um, just open our hearts to receive the Word and to obey it and to live it and love it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this uh, movie from the early 2000s um, called The Italian Job. Anyone seen it? Good stuff. I see, I see the nods in the back. Okay, good stuff. Um, it's one of those great movies where they just get a great cast and they pull off a little heist and there's great dialogue. But anyways, kind of like Ocean's Eleven. Um, but the thieves are in the thick of planning their job, their heist. And the older thief, his name is John, tells the younger up-and-coming thief the following. You know, Charlie, there are two kinds of thieves in the world. Those who steal to enrich their lives and those who steal to define their lives. Don't be the latter. Don't be the kind of thief who steals to define their lives. Now, um, aside from the obvious fact that stealing is wrong, all right, uh, this is pretty sage advice. Don't let what you do, don't let the outward circumstances of your life, don't let um, the things that consume your life define you. If you're going to be stable and healthy and well and not be utterly disappointed, you have to let something else define you. So what defines you? Just ask that question. That's a really, that's a really important question. Um, don't, don't miss this. Don't settle for cheap answers on this. Um, you will inevitably live out of who you think you are. It's inevitable. Your behaviors are a result of your heart, who you think you are, who you think, who you think you, um, how you think you should live, what you think you deserve. Your identity affects how you live. Um, and it's so important, this, this understanding of identity and this understanding of defining our lives correctly is that in the midst of everything going on in Corinth, all the issues, that is where Paul starts. He starts with, see who you are in Christ. So let's look. Uh, the first thing that jumps out of this passage is that the Corinthians, in spite of all of their sin, they are in Christ. Now, in Christ is one of these phrases that occurs so many times in the Bible, especially in the letters, that we just kind of gloss over it, and we don't think about its significance. Uh, but if you look in verse 2, uh, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5 all say in Christ. The, um, the church of Corinth is sanctified in Christ. 
They are given grace at the end of verse 4 in Christ, and they are um, enriched in Him, in Christ, in verse 5. Everything about them in this passage, all the things Paul says about them, are rooted in the fact that they are in Jesus. And in Jesus is kind of shorthand for saying united to Jesus. So the, the Corinthians are, are one with Jesus. They are super glued, stuck to Jesus. They're one with him. Uh, not spatially, obviously, but, but spiritually, believers are one with Christ. And this is difficult uh, to illustrate, um, but the Christian life actually gives us a picture of what it's like to be united to Jesus. Um, baptism is a symbol of, of several things, but, but one of them is being united to Christ. Just think about this, okay? You guys have seen baptism before, probably. You get dunked in the water and taken out, all right? Imagine if pastor puts someone in the water and then does not take them out. Okay, what happens? Pastor gets fired, yes, okay, all right. What, what else happens? The person drowns, they die, okay? Uh, and one thing that indicates, uh, in, in the scriptures, okay, uh, water does not just represent cleansing, it represents judgment. Think of Noah's flood, okay? Water represents death, judgment, all right? So going down in the water represents that you are united with Jesus in his death, that you're one with him in his death towards sin. All right, that, that's what going down in the water symbolizes. Coming back up symbolizes that you're one with Jesus in his new, cleansed, resurrected life. So, so this idea of union with Christ is, is central in the New Testament. If you are a believer, if you've trusted Christ, you're one with him. And uh, all of the benefits of the Christian life are a result of the fact that you are one with Jesus. Um, I have been a runner for a long time, uh, kind of off and on for the last few years, or last... 10 years, whatever. Uh, when I was in college, I used to run the Ravenel Bridge a lot, and I was this new Christian, and I was like, I'm going to run like a Christian, you know? So, like, I'm going to be nice to people when I pass them, okay? And that did not go well. No one is nice when they're running the Ravenel Bridge, okay? They just, like, look down. They hate their lives, you know? Anyways, um, but uh, four years ago, I got a golden retriever, and when golden retrievers are, like, you can start running them when they're, like, six months, eight months old, and the only way to keep your dog from going insane in your house every day is to wear them out. So, I would run with my dog, and all of a sudden, I noticed that people were so much nicer to me. Like, they would, like, smile, like, oh, hi, you know? Like, like, I'm like, what? You just, you yelled at me last year, you know? Like, what's your problem? Um, and I realized, okay, I realized I got the benefit of being treated nicely because they were looking at my dog. And they thought she was cute or whatever. And in the Christian life, every, every benefit you get is based on the fact that you are one with Jesus. God forgives you because in Christ you have already paid for your sins. God, God, God treats you like a son because you are united to the one who deserves to be treated like a son. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, but in the middle of the Corinthians, immaturity, letting their culture define their Christian lives, all of their issues, the first thing Paul says, you are, you are still in Christ. It doesn't change who you are. You're in Christ. There are three specific things he says about them being in Christ. First, they are sanctified in Christ. Look at verse 2. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Um, sanctified and called to be saints basically mean the same thing, and it probably doesn't mean what you think. Um, we typically have this idea that being a saint or being sanctified is a reflection of our actual lives. So like the Catholic notion of like the saints, you know, those like 100 people in history that have been super holy, um, or we talk about our sanctification 
and our sanctification is, is becoming more holy. Uh, here in this passage and in most of the Bible, sanctification is actually being set apart, being, being special, being picked by God for a purpose. That's what it means to be a saint, to be, to be sanctified. Kind of like uh, in the Old Testament, okay, God picked this random tiny nation, Israel, all right, and he saved them, and he put them in their own land, and he gave them all these strange-seeming laws to make them different from the nations. He separated them, even though they really struggled, right? They really had some bad days. He, he set them apart for his purposes. Um, and so, as a Christian, um, quick application here, as a Christian, you, if you are in Christ, you are set apart for God's purposes, and one thing that's just wonderful about this, there, there are a lot of implications of this, but one of them is everybody in this room desires to be special. You don't have to, it's okay, all right? You don't have to pretend, all right? You want to be significant. You want to be special. Um, you want to, in fact, some of us want to, want to have like a destiny. Have you ever, ever wondered why we, why we just love movies where the nobody is destined for greatness? You know, it's just inevitable. You know, they have this destiny. Like, like I was just talking to some guys about Harry Potter, okay? We just, Harry what? People are favorite. It's, it's not the magic, okay? It's this little kid who's nobody. Like, if all of a sudden, he's significant, and everyone wants that. And, and in Christ, regardless of the circumstances of your life, you are set apart by God for the most significant thing in the universe, becoming like Jesus and being near Jesus. Of all the people in the world, God picked you, and he set you apart for his purposes. Define yourself that way. Um, the next thing... Uh, that Paul says is that the Corinthians have been graciously enriched in Christ. He, the uh, end of verse four, he says he thanks God for the grace of God that was given to you in Christ, and then verse five explains that grace. In every way, you've been enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge. So the Corinthians have the spiritual riches of Jesus, and the the idea of the word being enriched is really simple. It's just to make somebody wealthy to make them rich. Um, and again, just imagine you woke up tomorrow, you inherit $20 million, all right? All of a sudden, you're not worried about the grocery budget anymore, right? You know, like, like paying rent's not a big deal. Like you have everything you need. That's the idea of riches. You are well supplied. You have everything you need. And this verse says that spiritually in Christ, because they are one with Jesus, the Corinthians have everything they need. Like uh, 2 Peter says that you've been given everything you need for life and godliness and the knowledge of him. That's the Corinthians. God's done that to them. Um, and, and again, just a quick application. If you're in Christ, you have all of the resources you need available to you to live the Christian life. Man, are you, are you scared to death to talk about Jesus? You, you, don't need to, you don't need extra training, okay? You need to trust that God's going to give you the resources that you need. And are you just dealing with sin right now, just wrestling with it? God has given you resources, um, so the Corinthians are, they're sanctified, they are enriched, and they are also secure, which is just so surprising in the middle of all their junk. Look at verse 8. They are waiting, sorry, in verse 7, they're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the end of time, okay? And it says in verse 8 that he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And just for a second, just think about how surprising this is. The Corinthians 
were, were living. They were living in sexual sin. They were, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They, they, were, they had divisions in the church. They're all, and, and what Paul says, think about that. You have a friend like that? Are you going to lead with, God's going to sustain you to the end? You're going to say, no. You're about to lose your salvation, idiot. You know? Paul says, no, no. You, Jesus is going to be faithful to you. In the middle of your sins, in the middle of your mess, you are secure. There's going to be a day at the revealing of Jesus Christ when you are blameless before him. And God is going to make that happen. Um, and I think, I think this, this just reveals, all right, that we, when we feel secure, we act differently. Uh, me and Sarah have a, a four-year-old uh, foster son named Gabriel who's wonderful. Um, but sometimes he does things that you would never expect a four-year-old to do. Yesterday, um, we were having some discipline issues, and uh, in the middle of trying to do a timeout, he hit me in the face, and then he screamed no for 15 minutes, all right? And that's extreme, okay? Most four-year-olds don't do things like that, okay? My daughter's hit me before, but you know, most four-year-olds don't do things like that. And, and the issue, one of, the, uh, um, one of our people who trained us in Lifeline said that underlying children's behaviors are needs. The reason he acts like this is because he does not feel secure. He doesn't have this foundation of security that most children have. And guys, it's the same in your life. Man, why are you anxious? Why, why are you pursuing things that do not honor the Jesus? Because you don't, you're not secure. You, you, don't, you think you have to go, go secure your own destiny or happiness. And this passage says, no, in Christ, it is secured for you. You can live your life from a foundation of rest. So that's, a, that's who the Corinthians are, according to Paul, in the middle of all of their mess. Um, but back to my first question, all right? Why start here? Why start with who they are? Don't forget, Paul wants them to change. He, he is aiming for a change in behavior. They are behaving in ways that do not walk in step with the gospel. He's aiming for that. So why start here? Um, and I've said this a few times already, but I just want to say it clearly. Change starts with seeing Jesus and seeing who you are in Jesus. Change does not start by putting band-aids over your like bleeding artery, okay? It doesn't start with just changing your behaviors, with getting accountability, with community. Those things are important, okay? Change starts with you taking up what Jesus has done for you, appropriating it, defining yourself by it. That's where it starts. So today, um, maybe think through something in your life that you're wrestling with. Think through a, a sin issue. We've all got them. Um, sometimes we don't even know what they are, right? But think through something and, and ask yourself, how does Jesus provide for me here? What does my identity tell me about what I'm going through? How does he help? All right, so here's uh, now to the change, now to the hard part, okay? I, I, hopefully, hopefully that's encouraged you. Uh, it's, it's meant to encourage you. But, uh, but don't, don't miss, Paul's being real intentional here. Why, why does he say they're sanctified? Well, because he wants them to live like sanctified people. They're not. Okay, why does he say they're enriched? Because they think they got their gifts by themselves. You know, as we'll see in, later in the book, they're boasting about how smart they are and how great their spiritual gifts are. So these are intentional. Uh, this identity, okay, is meant for you to change. It's meant for us to change. So let's see what Paul wants. He, uh, he wants them to agree. Look at verse 10. He appeals to them in the name of Jesus, the one whom they're, they're united to. All right, three things. He says that you all agree 
that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This word agree uh, it kind of gives the sense of fixing something broken, perfecting something, mending something. Uh, a couple times in my life, this is kind of embarrassing, a couple times in my life, I've sat down and ripped a giant hole in my pants, okay? Uh, just like down, down the thigh, the worst place it could be. They're unusable, okay? Um, and the sense of this word is what happens when I take my pants to the seamstress and she fixes them, all right? It's taking something that is now, that's been made useless and mending it together so we can function again. The idea here is that these divisions have broken the church. They made the church unable to function as God intended. And what Paul's calling them to do is to mend them, to intentionally, for each, for all the parties, to take personal responsibility to mend what's broken. Um, now, but their struggle, though, look at their struggle specifically. Um, this is kind of strange. Uh, I, I haven't seen anything like this in church life in East Cooper. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, uh, Paul hears a report, a report from Chloe's people that there's quarreling among them. And verse 12 specifically says that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Uh, what has happened is there have become four camps in the church. People who view Paul as the guy. People who view Apollos as the guy, etc. And they, they have now separated themselves because of their disagreement. Um, and there are two things that, two big issues they're having. One is they are grossly misunderstanding the nature of Christian leadership. Pastors are not saviors. All right? People, pe- apostles are not saviors. Jesus is the only king. He's the only one who deserves your allegiance. And Paul's going to talk about that for the next four chapters, so we won't camp there today. But there's a second issue that I, w- I do want to camp on, and that is that uh, in the Corinthians' immaturity, they had let their preference for a particular leader divide them. So everybody in here, okay, um, all of us have different opinions. Some of you guys have different opinions on what, what the most faithful Christian life looks like or who you should model your Christian life after or um, how people should live or, or how worship should go or how, how a local church should function. We all have different opinions. Christians have always disagreed. But the Corinthians in their immaturity, had let their differences of opinion divide them. It broken fellowship. So we may not be, uh, well, look what Paul says, sorry, verse 13. Uh, Paul says, his reasoning here, all right, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He says that Jesus himself is one, and there weren't any apostles crucified for you. So you'll see the gospel here, you'll see that? The gospel applies to this. Um, the, the demand that people in the church unite is based on the fact that the gospel unites people. Jesus, all right, Jesus did not die for individuals. He died for a people, for the whole church. He purchased the whole church with his blood. And he has brought the whole church into himself. So if you are super glued to Jesus, you're also super glued to the person who's also super glued to Jesus. Does that make sense? If you got a poll here and I just threw you all, got all you guys against it with super glue on it, you'd be stuck together too. So the gospel unites people as a, as a, as a foundation. The nature of the church is one that's united. Um, you guys aren't walking around saying, I follow Buster, or I follow Danny, or I follow Leland, right? Anyways, you're not, probably, okay? Probably not. That'd be a little weird. So it might be, um, yeah, it might be tempting um, to think that this does not apply to our lives because we don't have this particular issue. Um, but I want to I pose a couple of questions to you and see if maybe we're a little more divisive than we think. Um, what if you woke up tomorrow 
and East Cooper has decided to jettison your chosen form of worship. So let's say you're a traditional person and the lights in Kadarsh just kind of freak you out and you can't worship in that environment. And East Cooper tomorrow woke up and said, that's not the future. We're jetting the choir, get out of here. Or vice versa, okay, whatever, whatever it is for you, okay? You can't, you can't do people singing in the choir, whatever, all right? Um, and you try for a few weeks and you're just not really experiencing the Lord's presence in worship. Do you leave? What if you woke up tomorrow and uh, East Cooper had jettisoned the young adults group? They said, get plugged in somewhere else. You're adults, take care of yourself, you know? You know, maybe not that gruff, okay? Not that mean. They wouldn't do that, okay? But they just said, we don't have money for this anymore. Sorry, we can't do it. All right, figure it out. And there's no central place of fellowship for you here. And it can't meet your need for friendship. Do you leave? What if in November, Buster had gotten up? I don't, I can never see this happening, okay? But Buster got up and said, either I'm voting for Hillary Clinton, you should too, or I'm voting for Donald Trump and you should too. Whichever one of those offends you the most, okay? I don't know, we're, we all, whatever, whichever one makes you, I can't believe you would do that, okay? Think about that. Would, would, you, would you leave, is there, is, there, is there a circumstance? Okay, now there are good reasons to leave a church, okay? Churches stop preaching the gospel, all right? Or you get called to go somewhere else, called to go to a different city or different location. But a lot of times when the church stops meeting our needs, we just jet. There's not division in the church because in America, we've got 50 different churches to choose from in one location. We just go somewhere else. And I think what this passage demands of us and what it calls us to is to commit to our local church come heck or high water to say, I am going to be a part of the body here. I'm, Jesus has stuck me spiritually and, and physically with these people. And I'm committing here. I'm joining this church. I'm going to be here. and I'm going to stay even if times come when I don't really like it. Guys, I'll just share this with you, okay? I'm a pastor on staff. We have done things I think are crazy that I don't agree with. I'm not going to tell you what they are, okay? But, uh, but we've, done, we've, we've done things that I don't agree with, okay? And, and the mark of my maturity, all right, is do I let this make me bitter and cynical and gossip about it or leave, or do I stay? Do in love for these people, out of desire to show the unity of, of the gospel, do I stay? I think that's what this passage demands of us, a commitment to the local church, a commitment to not let our preferences and our opinions determine our fellowship. Uh, the smaller application, probably not quite as close uh, to Corinth, is there are probably some relational divisions in this room. There are probably some hurt feelings, some things we haven't been able to get over, some few people that we're just kind of cold to, or some people that we just think are different than us, and we're just personality, we, we call it a personality clash when really it's we just don't like them, right? Um, and uh, I, I mean, let I me mean, just be, be real, okay? Um, they drive us crazy is what we're trying to say. Um, I think what this passage calls us to do is to go out of our way to mend those relationships. There's a tendency when something is awry, we're, just, we're gonna wait for them to come to us. You know, if they come to us, then great, we'll make, I'll make it work but I'm I'm just going to kind of wait. And this passage, the the idea here of agreeing, of of mending, is you go and you heal that relationship. You take care of it. Whatever it is in this room, you know, maybe, you know, if you're you're just grumpy or envious towards someone, maybe you just take that to the Lord, you know, and you ask for forgiveness and you start treating that person better. But if you've, you know, if you've sinned against somebody in here and you're really, and it's, it's broken and messy, like you need to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. Mend the division among you. 
Um, final thing, all right, and this is the one that I have the least amount of uh, authority or ability to talk about. I think that, in general, Christians should be people who desire unity in the bigger church. It, it, should, it should break our hearts that in America, the church is divided basically along socioeconomic and racial lines. That should hurt us. We should want that to be mended. We shouldn't just be like, you know, it's kind of how it is. All right. I don't have any answers for that. Okay. I don't have any advice at all. But I'm just saying that in light of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the fact that he has taken people from all nations and tongues and tribes and brought them together in him, like we should not be content with just having people like us around us at church. We, we, we should strive for unity. Okay. Change is hard. Some, sometimes some of these applications I've given you guys are pretty tough. Um, Committing to a church, no matter what, is hard. Mending relational brokenness is hard. Um, but the wonderful thing about this passage uh, is, is that you're not just called to change. You're equipped to change. Everything we're, that's required of us in 10 to 17 is given to us in 1 to 7, or 1 to 9. Sorry, my math is bad. Um, God, God has given us resources for the difficult work of change. So I'd encourage you guys, with your, with your eyes set on Jesus this week, mend what's broken among you. All right, let's pray really quick. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, this passage and that in Christ we are one and that, we're, and that Lord, you have, you have taken us into yourself, that, we, that you are present in us, that you live in us. And we, we just plead, Lord, that that reality would begin to govern how we actually live. We just pray that what you have done in the gospel for us would determine our attitudes and how we, how we think and how we act. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, we've got about 10 minutes. I would love to do a little, uh, a little Q&A. Um, so I guess, I guess what, I, what I want is a, let's just respond to the word together. So if you have a question about the passage, wonderful. If you have a comment, about the passage, wonderful. We'll limit we'll limit responses to two minutes or so, or one minute or whatever. Um, but uh, again, I said this last week, but I used to do middle school ministry, so I'm okay with asking questions and sitting in silence. I can do that. It's fine. Silence is good. Helps you think, you know. Um, but what you got? I'll, I'll open the floor up. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, say that um, isn't it your responsibility as a Christian uh, if something